Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 678 with Riaz Megji. If you have ever wanted to have less small talk and more big talk to win trust, to connect all the better with folks, well, we have a master conversationalist in Riaz who will help you do just that. So you'll learn one, the one trick to becoming a better listener, two, where to draw the line between vulnerability and oversharing, and three, how to be assertively empathetic. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we referenced, please Visit us at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP678. And if you're at awesomeatyourjob.com, I recommend you check out some of the cool stuff like our gold nugget email summaries, which give you a quick write-up of Riaz's wisdom in an email you can read in about two or three minutes, as well as unlocking the vault of all 678 of these summary write-ups. That's called the gold nuggets at awesomeatyourjob.com. Now here's Riaz's story. Riaz Megchi is a human connection expert. He has 17 years of broadcast television experience. And during his time as host on City TV's Breakfast Television, MTV Canada, TEDx Vancouver, CTV News, and the Toronto International Film Festival, he's interviewed thousands of experts about human connection and collaboration, undertaking critical training that helped shape the tangible takeaways he shares in his new book, Every Conversation Counts. Big thanks to Riaz for sharing his wisdom with us. And big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Now, here's Riaz. Riaz, thanks for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Pete, it is good to be with you, man. Thanks for having me on. Oh, I'm excited to talk. And I also want to hear, you've got a story. You've got some Canadian TV background and another Canadian star, Eugene Levy. I understand there's a story involving you, him, and eyebrows. <laughs> Tell us about it. <laughs> oh, I love it. This is what happens when you fill out the questionnaire beforehand. Tell yeah. me some interesting tidbits of where <laughs> we can go. I mean, Eugene Levy, a national treasure here in Canada, and he was filming a cameo role on a sitcom called Package Deal, which was being filmed in Vancouver, British Columbia, where, where I am right now. And we had the chance to go on set with Eugene and obviously a legend in the comedy game. He's honed his craft. You could tell the entire cast and crew respected him. We had 20 minutes to do an interview. And he was so generous, so gracious about how he's achieved success, how his family succeeds. A lot of people know about Dan Levy and Shit's Creek. And then towards the end of the interview, he just took a moment to pause and say, hey, thank you very much for bringing the energy, the enthusiasm to the interview. But if there's one piece of advice I can give you, 
If you want to succeed in this business and if you want to play the long game, there's one thing you need to know. And obviously when Eugene drops that, I just leaned in. I'm like, what is it? He's like, make sure you insure your eyebrows. (laughs) (laughs) I know we're on the podcast right now, but hey, game recognizes game. He's got those thick caterpillars. These South Asian roots are giving me those thick caterpillars too. And I said, Eugene. Awesome, man. I don't know if they do that, but that is a, an amazing trademark to make it in the <laughs> entertainment business. Game on. Insure the eyebrows. Yeah. It's hard enough to get an insurance company to do anything outside of their uh, cookie cutter <laughs> legal boilerplate. <laughs> that probably takes some doing to, to pull that off. Yeah, that, they would put they would put a new box to, to check. Diva? Yep, correct. That's Riaz. <laughs> his eyebrows insured. Let's yeah. just focus on the mortgage in the home. There's an extra premium for the the diva. It's like a young driver. They'll, they'll slap you with that. Well, so so we're talking about. Uh, you got a book here. Every conversation counts. The five habits of human connection that build extraordinary relationships. I'd love to hear. You've done a lot of conversing and connecting in your years. What would you say is is one of the most uh, surprising lessons you've picked up along the way? Mm, that there's two teachers in the room. Okay. In any conversation two teachers in the room. And this was a great lesson that was presented to me by a very popular host in Canada. Uh, His name is Ron McLean, a magnificent storyteller. And he uh, has this gift of anyone that he interviews, I mean, his primary gig is Hockey Night in Canada, but he is such a masterful interviewer uh, with athletes, not just seeing what's in front of us, but seeing what the story is behind behind the lens. Mm -hmm. And he really talked about the idea that the interviewers out there that can do the research and come in with the greatest intention, uh, yeah, that's their job to just stay curious as long as possible. But how somebody really listens, how the interviewer really listens to draw out the story that isn't being told is the opportunity to be a teacher. Because the person answering the questions, they've got the ideas, they've got the stories they're going to share, but the art of listening and, and being the interviewer, you can be a powerful teacher to, to just be a mirror and create a heightened level of awareness that that subject might not even know about. And when he said that to me, that there's two teachers in the room, it always reminded me, whether you're asking the question or answering the question, there's a chance to learn from each other in just very profound ways. That's cool, certainly. And the listening is, is huge. And I think a lot of my guests have have commented. It's it's nice that you don't just sort of move through a preset list of questions. And uh, I mean, I think, where's the fun in that? I mean, <laughs> in terms of the live back and forth is where a, a lot of the magic and fun is. So amen to that. It's so true. And I, I can say this early on in my career, I've been doing television for almost 20 years now. Earlier on, I would do that exact same thing, Pete. I'd do all of the research, come up with a list of questions that I thought were brilliant, and then I would check the box of, was this a successful interview? And the gauge on that would be, did I ask all of the questions I brought into the conversation? Mm -hmm. And then slowly, I was realizing the moment was being missed to unlock something from that subject that you can't Google. And one of the simple things I would do in the green room with any guest of no matter how much research I would do, which would give me confidence, I would slowly begin to over-prepare to improvise. And the way I would do it is in that green room, I I would greet the guests, you know, we'd go past the formalities, but I'd simply start that by asking, hey, so what's on your mind? Mm -hmm. And the first thing that came out of their mouth 
would allow me to understand what the priority is for them. So no matter how much research I did, I would park it, prioritize their priorities, and then lean in, listen, and be ready to improvise. And I found that's where some magical moments would really happen with the people in front of us. Yeah, that's cool because I'd imagine if that's their priority and you give that some love and attention up front, they think, I like this Riaz guy. I could open up. I could trust. I can, I could, I could share a little bit more. I can not be as guarded and good things can flow there. Yeah. And you know, that approach allowed me to really understand that there are three questions that stood out when you're trying to unlock somebody and get them to open up and, and just truly share who they are, that the three questions we all ask ourselves, especially the first time we're meeting somebody, are, do you care about me? Are you listening to me? And can I trust you? Mm-hmm. And simply recognizing the value of those three questions really allowed some beautiful moments to be shared, not only in the green room, but that trust to convey something really powerful when it was on live TV, which can be nerve wracking for anybody involved. Mm-hmm. Those are some great questions right there. And I'm curious, I guess you'll get the answers you want if you actually do care and you actually are listening <laughs> and you actually are trustworthy. So I don't know if there's any tricks or hacks that could be implemented there, but nonetheless, I'm going to ask you, how do you make it so that the person you're talking to picks up the good stuff, assuming that you do have a good heart and intentions and you really do care and you really are listening and you really are trustworthy. How can you make that all the more apparent? Mm, I think it's, it's saying less and listening more and following their lead. And what I found is over the years, a lot of the times that when you, when you look at any conversation or any interview, the person in control of the, the conversation is the one asking the questions. And sometimes that initial question that you ask I would get caught up in the trap early on, Pete, where <laughs> I would come in with, like I said, all of this information, and I would overcomplicate things. And I would unleash this overcomplicated setup that had like multiple questions. Oh, yeah. In I've that first that. question where, yeah. where somebody is saying, <laughs> okay, well, hey, that, that's great. You did all this research. I don't even know how to answer this because you asked me like 10 questions in one. So I think really getting to the point and simplifying things off the top and then how you make it apparent to that person that you know, you're know you dialed in is the value of the follow-up and those expansive questions that are starting with a what or how that have a high emotional component as well. Because I find a lot of the questions that happen, and maybe it's because people are overwhelmed with one information, two with stress, three with the awkwardness, especially coming out of this pandemic of how do we connect? This has got to be perfect. It's forgetting about the facts and, and putting the facts Uh, in the background and focusing on the emotional connection you can have with somebody. And I find like that's that feeling someone could have where you're asking a question that really taps into a feeling they're experiencing. That's where that magic happens, where they begin to really appreciate that you want to be where they're at and you're exploring that important space for them. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, so let's dig into some of the particulars then. So you've, you've said in your subtitle, the five habits of human connection. So what are those five and how do we do them well? Yeah, well, you know, we kind of touched on the first one being listening, but the habit, you know, I really wanted to articulate is listening without distraction. And this culture that we're in right now is one, a culture of convenience, with technology. We're flipping a camera on, we're flipping a microphone on, we're having our meetings, and everything's moving so fast with this convenience. So it is easy. Looking at the science of our brains and and, and how we connect, 
in many ways, I feel like we're all just too smart for our own good. Hmm. Simply, simply because our brains can absorb four to 500 words per minute, yet the average person is speaking at a rate of 125 words per minute. Right. So that means with that extra capacity we have when we're listening, we could easily get caught up in technology, in multitasking, in daydreaming, the emotional distraction of shutting down if we disagree with somebody. So I think the first thing, if we're going to listen without distraction is listen to ourselves on a daily basis. And if you're listening to this right now, auditing ourselves to say, what are the distractions on a daily basis in your everyday communication that are pulling away the focus and gift of undivided attention you could give somebody? And not trying to remove those all at once, because that can be completely overwhelming, but just becoming aware of what they are and then slowly starting to pick those off one by one. And that'll allow us to be so much more present uh, not only with their listening ear, but more importantly, with their curiosity uh, to dive deeper with what somebody might be sharing with us, especially if it's something quite vulnerable or real. Mm-hmm. And that notion about being too smart for your own good and the word count differential, I'm intrigued with the awareness of distractions. Could you give us some big categories? Because I think it's pretty, I think it's pretty obvious, like, okay, the phone, you could you look at your smartphone, you hear the dings and the buzzes and you're wondering, who, who was that? What was that? What was going on just right there? You know, so, so that, that's one. And, and I think that's kind of, that's kind of obvious, but what are some of the other ways that we fill that word count gap in between our ears that's distracting and unhelpful? Yeah. You know, if we're feeling uneasy, it's so easy uh, for, for us to get caught up in our agendas. I mean, if we're rehearsing our elevator pitch or think about the interview process, thinking about, okay, I got to get to this question, got to get to this question, we're missing out on what that person's giving us. Mm -hmm. So it really comes down to how do we just let go of our agenda? Let go of that pitch that you had and ask more and and try to unlock something with someone. It's easy with our own biases to, to have assumptions unconsciously get in the way of thinking this is the way it's going to go. This is the way it's always been and missing out on an opportunity to have a breakthrough with somebody. And that really ties into the idea of judgment as well and our negativity bias. So checking our bias or judgment, our assumption, and even our agendas on that emotional level, I think that's one of the biggest, Pete. And I, I think the first thing people will say, oh, it's technology. It's, it's our screens getting in the way. But I also think it's us. Mm-hmm. And with all of the mental game that could go on trying to achieve an outcome, we might lose sight on the opportunity of enter every conversation of how are we going to build this pure and meaningful relationship as opposed to go through all of these mechanical or just methodical ways to achieve your objective, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's really good with the agenda there in terms of it's when you're focused on that you're necessarily not focused on what is being said in the moment. Mm-hmm. And it's funny. I, I think maybe we have a suspicion perhaps that if we don't give mental energy to remembering the agenda, uh, it will be forgotten and catastrophe you know, will, 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 will befall us. But in practice, I, I find that, once there's a pause, it's just like, oh, and, oh, and oh, now this thing, you know, it, it doesn't go away if you stop thinking about it. It's still mm-hmm. ready for you and you could just write it down. <laughs> <laughs> when all else fails, write it down. And you know what? That's actually a very good point because one of the most important things that I've learned that, that has really helped. I mean, you asked 
an important point of, you know, how, how do you make this apparent in the conversation itself that, you know what, you care. And then I, I am listening to you and I trust you. Those things you write down, especially those uncommon commonalities that, that might pop up with unique passions, whether it's maybe it's something in your career, something in your health, something in your relationships, but something that's so specific, if you're able to write that down, and let's be real, we're not going to be able to remember every single detail, but if we write it down and we follow up with somebody a week, a month, maybe even a year down the line, instead of me emailing you and saying, hey, Pete, hope you're well, but if we could replace hope you're well with, hey, Pete, and then insert a moment we shared, immediately someone's going to say, wow, like I can't believe Pete remembered that. And it's going to start opening up that idea of, yeah, they listened, yeah, they care, and yeah, I could trust him. Mm -hmm. Because he valued what I said. And that takes effort on our part when we're listening and also being real with documenting these moments too, because realistically, we can only remember so much. Yeah, that's cool. All right. So we, we have the habit of listening without distraction. And the second habit is to make your small talk bigger. How do you recommend we do that? Yeah, man. <laughs> A lot of people dread the idea of small talk. I bet you, you just use those two words, small talk. People will think, I, I don't want to go there. I'm just going to dodge it. I'm going to avoid it altogether. And looking at the exercise of small talk over the years, I've just come to realize that small talk is such a defense mechanism. Hmm. Because what it really does is it prevents us from the embarrassment of getting emotional in front of someone we don't know. Yeah. Or maybe hitting a nerve with somebody else and we're not ready to process their emotion and be a witness to what they're experiencing. Yeah. And I think with small talk, if we're going to make it bigger, especially right now, like the, the big change I feel we've all seen in the past year is that in many ways, we've all been in like this state of constant state of grief, whether we've realized it or not. And it's grief over the loss of the way we used to live our lives. Yeah. Like those conversations of convenience at the water cooler or dropping into somebody's office or maybe hanging out on the sidelines at a sports game with, with, with parents as you watch your kids. Those are gone. Temporarily, those are gone. But the conversation that's top of mind for everybody right now is the psychological struggle of how they've waded through and, and it kind of survived through this pandemic. So if we're going to make our small talk bigger, here's a real opportunity. And maybe this was a silver lining of this uncertainty being our universal commonality with the pandemic is, is just, yes, less facts, more emotion. Mm -hmm. And if you have no context of the person in front of you, like as interviewers, we could say, Hey, yeah, okay. We had time to research the subject. We have some ideas. It's going to make the small talk go deeper, a lot easier. But if you have no context of that person in front of you being a proud Canadian, I call this the happiness hat trick. And this is courtesy of the late great uh, psychiatrist Gordon Livingston, who did terrific work on the happiness equation for people. Mm -hmm. And he found the happiest people have something to do. They have someone to love and they have something to look forward to. Yeah. And if you have no context of the person in front of you, start there. Because all of those have a high emotional component of what matters most to the person in front of you. And that'll start to unlock that sense of feeling of where somebody's at. And then, yeah, let them lead with that and, and be that teacher that asks those questions to help unlock where they're at and where they want to go. And that conversation, that relationship will deepen in a really meaningful way. Mm -hmm. And that notion of a small talk being a defense mechanism, I, I think that really rings true, though I haven't quite thought of it that way. I mean, like if someone says, someone, I, I just walk in a place, they say, how you doing? I don't think. Well, 
It's true. I, I don't want to say, well, I feel really weird and restless because we moved and they have no idea what's going on with the truck and all of my stuff. And I'm just like, is it lost forever? Should I buy all new stuff? It's very unsettling. So on top of not knowing very many people. And so it's, I don't know, I'm sad. I'm anxious. I am unsettled. But, you know, it's sort of like, that's all I'm really doing, you know, but I'm not going to say that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just like, how's it going when you walk into a Starbucks? You know, it's so effectively, that is a defense mechanism. It's like, I guess it's just the nicer way of saying none of your business. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. Yeah. Our answers are when somebody says, how are you? And you're like, good, thanks. Yeah. Translation <laughs> business. Yeah. But if we could switch that question, you know, like, because it is second nature, it's just a greeting, it's autopilot mode. That's what mm-hmm. that question is. But if we if we switch it with one word, it could provide permission and that opportunity to let that person know, Pete, I really want to know how you're doing. And it's, hey, how are you really? Mm-hmm. Like, how are you really doing? And that one word allows that person to know, oh, this person's really checking in. Yeah. This isn't just superficial <laughs> BS of how are you? Yeah, let's go through it now. I'm going to order what I want from Starbucks. Mm. But there's an intention of how we ask the question that can really break that autopilot mode. And someone could say, oh, this is an authentic opportunity here. And by you sharing that and somebody being in that space at any point yeah. and on any given day, you know, something, something powerful could happen. And that could, that, that could change your life. That could change the, the listener's life. And that's up to us on, on how we engage with our small talk. Certainly. And it's true in terms of what gets opened up and, and then where that goes. It's, I was chatting with my barber and he just started talking about how the Wim Hof breathing approach uh, has transformed his life and how he met Wim and uh, did some stuff. Like all, all this stuff is like, well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> he just mentioned that he's, you know, winding down being a barber. It's like, oh, what, what are you up to? <laughs> he just got going. It was like, well, this is fascinating. I'm going to go, I've heard of this guy. I'm going to get the app, you know, whatever. And so, yeah. And we'll see just how transformational it is. You said Wim Hof? Was that it? Wim Hof. Yeah. I've never heard of that. What am I missing? He might be on the show. He's, he's famous climbing Mount Everest in his shorts and setting some world records for ice exposure. And there's some cool science behind some of his breathing and, and, and stuff. So yeah, anyway, I learned about that chat with my barber. <laughs> you never know. You never know what'll pop up. Well done. I gotta look into it. Cool. So let's hear the third habit there. Put aside your perfect persona. What's the story here? Yeah. This notion of us practicing imperfection through technology. I mean, we see it on social media. It's, it's kind of become a second nature habit. And the idea here is to really invite people to show up and have the courage to be themselves. And this is easier said than done. It's an idea that came to me in a conversation with Darren Hardy, which happened a few years back. And and Darren, for those that don't know, he's the author of a terrific book. It's one of my faves. It's called The Compound Effect of How the Small Things Can Have a Profound Effect in Your Life. And he's a renowned uh, CEO, coach, and mentor for leaders around the world. And he was in Vancouver for an event. We sat down for 20 minutes and he's interviewed some of the greats as well, like some of the greatest interviewers. And I said to him, I'm like, Darren, like what, what, what is your secret to having people truly open up and show you who they really are? And he kind of smiled and he looked at me and he said two words. <laughs> I said, lay it on me. And he said, go first. Mm-hmm. I said, go first. I'm like, okay, tell me about this. And he said, if you want to motivate somebody, find out what motivates them and help them achieve that. He said, go first. He's like, if you want somebody to trust you, go first. 
and reveal something that's raw and candid and show them that this is a safe space. They have this psychological safety that you've given them a part of you and it's safe for them to return the favor. And I thought this was so fascinating of the idea of going first because (laughs) maybe it's the cautious or skeptic part of my mind was like, well, what's the difference between going first and oversharing? Mm -hmm. Because that could backfire on you. And I know you had John Levy on the show and he was talking about the pratfall effect. And that that is a very important part to consider of conveying credibility before vulnerability mm-hmm. and establishing, you know, that responsibility and that point of authority. And then that reveal can really draw people closer. And if they're questioning your competence to begin with and you're tripping over yourself and you're flooring the gas pedal with all of this candid vulnerability, yeah, it can really backfire and create distance instead of that connection. So this notion of putting aside your perfect persona is really going first with a piece of yourself. Mm -hmm. And one of those examples that, you know, we recently saw, I'm I'm a big Will Smith fan. And when I saw Will Smith post up, hey, I'm going to be real with you all. I'm in the worst shape of my life. I don't know if you've seen this photo, but he put himself out there just in his boxer shorts showing that the the guy that's all muscles and, and cut in movies for the first time doesn't look that way. And it gave permission for people to talk about their bodies and their pandemic bodies and, and, and celebrate the fact that, hey, we're all in this together. We can all get through this together. And he's inspired people going on new workout routines and transformations just by going first with, you know, the challenge he has. So I think it, it shows up in many ways. Mm, yeah, that is powerful. And I do want to hear if you've cracked the code on that oversharing kind of complexity there. Because I guess what comes to mind is I was chatting with one of my podcast guests and I guess he already had tremendous authority and credibility in my eyes because I've researched him. I know his bio and stuff. And I say, oh, how you doing? He's like, oh, well, you know, it's been a difficult week. I've got a son who's, you know, been struggling with with drug addiction. And, uh, you know, we thought we had that kicked, but then fortunately, you know, this happened. And so, so we shared that and it only took maybe 20 seconds to reveal And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. The way I received it, I did not find that off-putting at all. I felt for him. I thought, oh man, that's gotta be so hard. I've got toddlers today. I can only imagine like struggling with that in the future. And it really did. It made me, you know, like and trust him a bundle. And I've been sort of eager to connect with him whenever I'm in his city. So that's pretty darn vulnerable in terms of what's going on in in, in your life for real. That's, That's hard and that's real. So I did not receive it in a, whoa, easy fella, you know, simmer down too much information. I didn't receive it that way. I don't know. Maybe some people would, but I don't know. He just seems so great. It would be hard to imagine. So I don't know. How do you think about that dance? If I'm going to share something like that, the question I'm asking myself is, is the person or is the audience ready to hear this? Are they in a space where they're ready and willing to accept the emotional intensity I could bring on them. And I'm not surprised by your reaction. I mean, you're a master of your craft doing these interviews. This is what you do uh, to, to bring out the best in people, to see who they really are. But if we're on the street and the circumstances, things are moving fast and there's only a limited amount of time and I'm dropping that on somebody, I don't think I've set them up for success If say we're walking and they're trying to get to a destination, maybe they're trying to pick up their kids, they're not in the right space to be able to receive it and support me. Yeah. So I think it's important to pick the spot. And if the spot is right and there is time and somebody's willing to accept it, I think the flip side of that is if I'm going to share something that I'm struggling with, 
I really look at how can I share a bit of the transformation going on? Because I find as listeners, we're always looking for that moment of how is this moment? How is this story? How could this make my life better? Mm-hmm. And if I'm going to share a bit of the struggle and the conflict, I always think, what what is the point of reflection or lesson I've learned through this that I could share with somebody if they were to hit this roadblock too? Mm-hmm. So it's almost like the struggle becomes a share and point of service to be like, so here's what I've worked through. Here's what I've learned. And here's what I'm still trying to get to. And that awareness, that reflection, and perhaps a teaching moment gives somebody a gift of real life perspective, mm-hmm. as opposed to just an emotional dump where they're thinking, what do I do with this? And I think, you know, Ray Dalio said this, and this really stuck with me, of pain plus reflection equals progress. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a powerful statement. And I, I also think about all of the things we've individually gone through during the pandemic. When somebody asks, tell me about something that happened during the past year that had a positive impact on your life. Or tell me about something that, that really changed things for you. That's on us to really absorb, reflect, write about these moments in our lives, and one, teach ourselves, and then two, have the opportunity to share in profound ways so people will will be grateful mm-hmm. for the share. Not only because, hey, you trusted me with that, but you're teaching me as well about what this struggle really means and, and how to work through it. Yeah, I think that's great. It's handy and it's, it is of service. And in a way, it's... <laughs> I don't know, maybe it's sort of sad commentary on human nature. It's like, okay, so you're struggling, but what's in this for me? (laughs) And yet that's kind of there. So if you serve that up alongside, it's helpful on multiple fronts. So yeah, to that point, Pete, if the audience is asking what's in it for me, if you are a close confidant, there's an opportunity. Maybe that person who's struggling is not giving you something, but maybe they're coming to you for something. And that can light you up as well of that. What's in it for me? Here's my chance to help you. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's a powerful point of building a relationship too, because I find a a lot of the times we're we're just quick to interrupt or dropped unsolicited advice. But if if I'm surrendering and saying, Hey Pete, can you help me out with this? Like you've interviewed so many people, like what's your take on this? That's a chance to celebrate your wisdom. And and that's a powerful tool as well. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Well, let's hear the fourth one. Be assertively empathetic. How do we do that? When you hear those two words, assertively empathetic, does that strike you as, as odd? Like those two can't go together? It is. It's different. And so, because the, the emotional vibe of assertive is like, I'm, I'm stating this is my position and this is what I need. Versus empathetic is like, oh yeah, I really want to understand. You know, it, They have a different emotional charge to them. So yeah, when they're side by side, it's unique. Yeah. I asked that question because I find anyone that's come across it, they say to me, well, isn't that an oxymoron? Like, how do you do both? And the assertive side of things kind of touches on what we talked about in the listening without distraction of checking ourselves. In this time where it's a polarized climate, whether it's political views or just different ways of living life, it is so easy when we disagree on something to jump in, to challenge, to interrupt, uh, to give that unsolicited advice to what we just talked to you and forget about the idea of acknowledging that person. So the assertive side really comes at checking ourselves and acknowledging, putting the focus on acknowledging that person, even if you disagree with them Mm. and allow them to express where they're at. 
and what they're experiencing. And the philosophy really is how can we discover before we dismiss any type of idea and be curious longer? Mm -hmm. And when we've acknowledged them and we've kind of heard about what's going on, confirming, okay, our understanding is this, here's, you know, what you're going through. And then once the relationship has been prioritized, then's the opportunity to bring in the logic and focus on what we can agree on. So, you know, like, Pete, what's the real challenge here for you? Like, what does your ideal scenario look like? And what would it take for this to, to work for you? And the big goal of this, as we check our own emotional limitations and put that focus of look at you is greater than look at me in this, especially when things are heated, is we want to create a dynamic where it would be you and me, Pete, versus the problem instead of me versus you. Mm-hmm. And that takes assertiveness to check our own inclinations to jump in and then the empathetic aspect to lean in be curious even when we disagree to just give someone the opportunity to be understood yeah well i really appreciated those those sample questions you were dropping there because i got the vibe is like you were assertive in the sense of is like oh you're really going for you're really going for some territory here and how you're approaching it it's like it's the heart of the matter it's the real deal stuff and we're not getting distracted by the irrelevant pieces so in that sense it is assertive but the content that we're getting after is empathetic in terms of like the emotional stuff that we're going for there yeah and the power of questions really stands up i mean i found it fascinating there was a study university of wisconsin did back i think this was back in 2013 on difficult conversations and they said well how do you create a safe space When someone has to convey negative news or you completely disagree on something, and they talked about the notion of how we can own our own emotions, and it came down to the use of I statements. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm feeling frustrated here. You know, I'm feeling exhausted. You know, I should have known better with this, Pete. Or even using the I statement in the question. Like, Pete, how did I fail to show up for you here? Mm -hmm. Or, Pete, what's the question I failed to ask to understand where you're at? All of that is a great deal of assertiveness to own the fact that something has been missed on my side, but at the same time, the direction is complete empathy because you're trying to get to the understanding of bringing somebody in so you show it's us in this together and we can productively disagree as opposed to just have an unproductive confrontation. Yeah, that's cool. Perfect. All right, we're just going to leave it there. I have nothing to add. That's excellent. Let's <laughs> hear about making people feel famous. This final habit really kind of touches on what I believe people need most right now. And given everything we've been through, I feel like what we benefit from the most is having a cheerleader or some sort of champion in our corner. And someone that's going to say, I see what you're doing, Pete. Like, I see the great work you're doing in this podcast. That previous episode you had with that certain guest, that gave me something that made my days better. And it's this point of appreciation, recognition, but above all, specificity. And you know, when we talk about the generic, how are you, the easy thing you throw out, it's autopilot. It's also autopilot if uh, I've listened to an episode you've done and, and for me to just email you and say, hey, Pete, great job on that last episode. Mm-hmm. It's such a throwaway. It's such a missed opportunity for me to make you feel valued in, in terms of the work you're doing. But more importantly hone in on what it was because i could say great job but the question on your side might be like well what exactly made it a great job and a simple way to make people feel famous is how we practice specificity and how we praise others and how we make it specific to a certain moment 
how we make it personal of like, listen, this is how it changed my life. How we make it public and champion it and share it on social media and say, hey, check this guy's podcast out. You want to be awesome? This is it. This is the place to be. But connected back to purpose Mm -hmm. and saying, this is how I made a difference in my life and here's what I'm trying to do. And if we can do that and practice that habit of specificity and and lifting people up and, and making them famous, so to speak, above all, it creates this culture of feeling valued and appreciated when... We have this opportunity now to start to go back to work and organizations are going to try to retain talent. There are going to be some big factors when people are deciding, where do I want to work? How do I want to work? And who do I want to work with? And this final habit really touches in the idea of being seen and having a powerful sense of belonging. And it's a simple thing we can do, but I think it can have a profound effect. Mm -hmm. That's beautiful. Absolutely. Well, Rial, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things. I just hope if you're listening to this right now, that the opportunity of breaking out of autopilot mode is something we all can control. And the whole objective of this message of every conversation counts was just to encourage people to just be more intentional, whether that's with how we listen, how we get curious, you know, how empathetic we could be, or how specific we could be when we're trying to lift people up is let's break out of autopilot mode right now and and find ways to just energize our relationships and, and lift each other up. Cool. Well, now could you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? This was given to me by my editor of my book last year when we were writing in 2020, because I'm totally the guy that overanalyzes and overthink things. And my editor said, look, you cannot edit a blank page. Mm -hmm. And that really resonated with me because the notion of trying to get it perfect the first time, I mean, you put aside your perfect persona, the editor encouraged, just put it down on paper whatever idea that might be, and then let's go to work on it and make it stronger and poke holes in it. But we can't do that unless you, unless you just have the courage to just put down that initial thought. Mm-hmm. So I love the simplicity of it. You cannot edit a blank page. If anyone has a writer's block, just put it out there, test it, experiment with it. And that's how we can make it better. Mm-hmm. And a favorite book? I really dig The Coaching Habit by Michael Bungay Stanier. And the reason I dig it is the simplicity of the questions that he asks. I mean, sure, it's a book about coaching, but it really uh, demonstrates the power of curiosity to open up windows of stories and conversations and deepening relationships. Simple read, digestible read, memorable read. So The Coaching Habit is one of my faves. And how about a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? Well, I, I like this Blue Yeti mic. How's the yeah. uh, audio sounding so far on the podcast? Sounds pretty good. Uh, we, we have talked not too echoey, which is the only potential downfall of the Blue Yeti. But when ooh, in a low echo room, it's just right. So I approve for what it's worth. <laughs> you know, building on the, the simplicity of technology. Yeah, it's funny, like working in, in the keynote spaces and when you have the chance to contribute, the TV side of me wanted to complicate things and think, okay, we need this high-tech studio. We need all these things. But at the end of the day, the value is the message Mm -hmm. and how we're going to move people and make them feel something and kind of simplifying things. Somebody introduced this Blue Yeti mic. I'm like, don't I need like a a fancy, like Sure 570? And I know those mics are gorgeous, but they're like, no, just get the Blue Yeti. They'll do the job. Mm -hmm. So as a tool, uh, this has helped me. And if it sounded good for you and it's sounding good for you listening, then, hey, I'll go with the favorite tool is the Yeti. All righty. And is there a particular nugget you share that seems to connect and resonate with folks? They quote it back to you and retweet it often? I think two things. The first being that pandemics don't 
change our identity, they reveal it. Hmm. And the big reveal that came from the last year is that human connection isn't an option. It's a necessity. Yeah. We all felt it at a deep level when those conversations that we were used to, those social rituals of high fives, hugs, handshakes, those are gone. And we lost a piece of what made us a, a community. And that human connection now is up to us to, to bring that back in, in impactful ways. So I think those two thoughts right there about how pandemics impact identity and reveal it and just the value of human connection are two, two thoughts I'd like to share that, that uh, seem to resonate. Mm-hmm. And if folks want to learn more, get in touch, where would you point them? Uh, just to the website, riazmegji.com. I'll spell it out because who can spell that name? Just hearing it for the first time. It's R-I-A-Z-M-E-G-H-J-I.com. And you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Reach out to somebody. If you listen to this, reach out to somebody in the next 24 hours. Maybe it's somebody that, that gave you a helping hand. Uh, maybe it's somebody that gave you a confidence boost over the last few months. Look, maybe it's somebody that gave you, you know, a wake-up call and called you out so they could call you up. And maybe you didn't let them know how much that meant. And if you've been thinking about somebody, my challenge is reach out to them. Get specific on how they made a difference for you. And, you know, watch the dynamic that can create. Beautiful. Riaz, this has been a treat. I wish you lots of enjoyable conversations in the future. Pete, love it, man. Thank you uh, for inviting the message on and just being in conversation in the space. I really appreciate Riaz's point about being specific in your praise, and it makes all the difference. And when you're not, I don't know, maybe it's just cynicism, but I think if you're not, it's almost too easy. I might, I don't know if this is going too far, but I think perhaps if you just say, you're great. That was terrific. Excellent. It may very well be that the majority of people will discount the majority of those things. So it's like, okay, I can infer from that that you are probably not upset and that I did not wildly underperform relative to your expectations. But they don't really know much more than that. Because <laughs> I'm sort of like, how are you doing? Fine. It's like, are you really fine? That, that we don't really know that. So I think that point about getting specific with your praise makes all the difference in terms of packing a punch, making it really feel authentic and happy and delivering more of a warm, I don't know, dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, you know, feel good cocktail in the brain of the recipient. So I really am resonating with that and making some time to think a little more before I send off a message or say something, what specifically is great. And how can I highlight its greatness? How might I identify how life would have been different if that person did not do that great thing? Or what my alternative would be had this not have turned up? So people really know and appreciate that I do know and appreciate what they've just done. So great stuff from Yaz. I hope you were digging that too. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links as we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP678. Hope to catch you next time and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. 
Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.